Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I'm joined by RCD contributor John Waters. In the January 2014 training exercise off the coast of Virginia, pilot Lieutenant Wes Van Dorn, his co-pilot Lieutenant Sean Snyder, and Petty Officer 3rd Class Brian Collins died when Van Dorn's MH-53E Sea Dragon helicopter caught fire and crashed into the frigid Atlantic. The MH-53E is one of the Navy's largest, oldest, and most deadly aircraft. Today, we speak with Zach Stoffer, director of the documentary Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn, which explores Wes's story and the investigation into why this aging aircraft with a known deadly track record continues to fly. We are also joined by Wes's widow, Nicole Van Dorn, whose efforts helped spur the inquiry into the institutional failings that led to her husband's death. And by Chris Hummy, Navy mechanic and aircraft maintainer on the MH-53E. Zach Stauffer, Nicole Van Dorn, and Chris Hummy, thank you so much for joining us today. Zach, just start with telling us what is the documentary Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn about? What's the incident that started this whole thing? And maybe you can tell us how you came to the story originally. Sure. Uh, Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn covers uh, and follows the people closest to a 2014 uh, Navy helicopter crash that resulted in the death of uh, three of the five uh, crew members on board. Um, At the time, I was a producer uh, at the investigative reporting program, a small nonprofit newsroom run out of the uh, UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And it began when one of our graduate students um, attended the funeral of one of the uh, uh, people on board, a crewman named Brian Collins. Um, and uh, Jason Palladino, the associate producer, attended the funeral and met a bunch of of sailors there who were telling stories that piqued his journalistic interest. Um, and that got conversations going with, with our office that ultimately led to a collaboration with the Virginian pilot uh, and a newspaper reporter there named Mike Hicksonbaugh. Um, we did a bunch of stories, um, uh, a piece on NBC News uh, that aired about a year after the accident. And then ultimately, we wanted to keep working with the material and see if we could get it to tell a larger story beyond just this helicopter, beyond just a single squadron in Virginia, but see how that story reflected on the military and the Pentagon's uh, pattern and practice. And and that's ultimately where we decided to take the film. And Zach, this is John. Headlines on military aircraft crashes become somewhat commonplace uh, to the point where maybe readers don't understand all the details involved. Just this week, uh, LA Times published a piece called Another Military Craft Crashes in California Desert, One Hurt in Navy Helicopter Accident. I think that was an MH-60, not a 53, as covered in your film. Uh, But what about this particular accident or incident piqued your interest? Well, I think for one, you have uh, the fact that it's a training exercise, as many of these things are. You know, these these um, accidents happen, they pop up on on news feeds, they're often not followed up on. Uh, and they're things that very few of us actually pay attention to unless we're in a military family or we have an interest in the subject matter. Uh, so it didn't take long um, before 
you know, our whole team realized that this was the deadliest aircraft in the military. Uh, people are more likely to die on this aircraft, uh, the 53E, than any other uh, in service at the time. And beyond that, we had, as, as a pilot on the helicopter, somebody who was totally revered by every one of his colleagues and somebody who kept records and notes about his concerns. So we had we had some uh, primary material uh, to to work with to kind of document the experience of those that work on this aircraft. And we had people who were willing to share their stories uh, about about this accident and about their experience in general. And I want to get to the subject of the documentary, Wes Van Dorn, and the records he kept and the studies he made and the two big failures, one leadership and the other maintenance, as I understood the film. But Zach, you've written in the past that you found 132 people have died on the Navy and Marine versions of this helicopter in the past 35 years, despite it never being shot down in combat. That probably is difficult to understand for the public, despite never being shot down in combat. And that's the background for why you call it the deadliest aircraft in the military. Did your three years of production, your interviews, and your footage bear that out? Yeah, this this helicopter, it's been in there's been crashes overseas in in theater. Uh the the deadliest day in the Iraq war. Um was when a CH-53, the Marine version of this helicopter, crashed with, um, I want to say, about 30 people on board, uh, give or take, it might have been 31, um, so give or take a couple, but about 30 people. So, But it was not a result of fire. It, it crashed, weather wasn't great, and and so on. Um, there's actually, we we found out later, somebody got in touch with us. Um, there's It's actually 136 people. Uh, our records request um, and the stuff that we got back from the Naval Safety Center left off an entire accident that that killed four people in 1999 near Okinawa. Um, so we were we updated that on our website. Um, but 136 people, all through just a regular old flight that they thought uh, would land safely on the other end. Um, but across those accidents, unfortunately, it didn't. And I'll and I'll point out that a, a lot of times people say, "Oh, it's a helicopter. It, it carries a lot of um, has room for a ton of people." And that's it's it's few accidents, but a lot of folks. But most of these uh, were actually just just the flight crew, pilots, and a couple people in in the back. Uh, you know, four four deaths, maybe two, uh, maybe only one. But it, these were not the result of a full busload of, of people, uh, with the exception of maybe that one in, in Iraq. The Marine version of the 53 frequently used for troop transport, but I wonder, Chris Hummy, what was the Navy version of this aircraft used for primarily in your experience? MH was used a little differently than the, I guess the, the main mission was, I guess, intended. Um, our, our main mission was technically mine hunting, but we didn't ever really, I mean, you never found any mines. You just drug stuff through the ocean and kind of practiced it a lot. We really kind of shine pretty brightly, I guess, with like Hatter, uh, humanitarian aid, disaster relief, um, you know, stuff in Haiti, um, uh, 
you know, Hurricane Sandy, uh, you know, just just disaster, things like that, bringing in heavy equipment, water, food, supplies, things like that. Um, that would that's what I would probably describe our our most successful missions as a versatile airframe, a workhorse type of aircraft. Is that right? Extremely. Yeah. Hey, Chris, could you just give us some context for what your experience was with the 53? What, what was your relationship like with the 53? You were um, on, on maintenance with it. But, you know, just talk about that aspect of your career and what, what was the kind of depth and breadth of, of your experience with the 53? I would say on the upward climb of my Navy career, on paper and in other people's opinion, I would have just been called a subject matter expert. Worked my way up through the Power Plants Work Center. We were responsible for engines, um, blades, fuel tanks, pretty much everything other than like the hydraulic systems and the electrical systems. At the point where I started taking a downward side, uh, downward trajectory in the command, um, I would say I was I was basically uh, looked at as like an employee of Quality Assurance. I was a CDQAR, which is like uh, I worked for Quality Assurance, but I was in the work center. Um, it was my job to oversee maintenance, inspect maintenance, um, verify that things were done properly, signed off properly, uh, worded the correct way, all, all, all of that kind of stuff. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I just wanted our, our listeners to understand that the, you are not a casual observer in any, by any stretch of the imagination, that, that you've literally seen the guts of, of the problem. Um, I want to come back to that as well, but let's get Nicole into the conversation. One thing that John Waters was referring to and, and Zach was referring to is, is the documentation that Wes made along the way. Can, Nicole, can you talk about what Wes shared with you in terms of his concerns about the aircraft um, and, and you know, to really just tell us a little bit more about him as, as a human being? Sure. Um Wes was, by his very nature, a very conscientious human. Um, you know, s- to some people, maybe that looked like um, he was a little bit of a worrier. Um, but I knew him obviously very intimately. Um, we were, I mean, we were best friends before we were married. So when we were really young, when we got to the command, I mean, you know, like our early twenties, uh, and, and Wes didn't really want to ruffle too many feathers. But being the conscientious observer uh, that he was, he you know he'd come home some nights and he'd just be, he would just feel like something was off. Uh, he'd feel like something wasn't right, but he he didn't really know at first where to go, who to talk to, and he was very new in the command. You know, he wanted to be successful at his career. Um, you know, and as his wife and as his best friend, I I understood that. Um, but I also suggested, like you know, eventually, eventually we're not going to be new. Eventually, we're not going to be young, um, and it wouldn't hurt us to start keeping records of what you think. Even if we're even if we're being overly cautious, you know, why don't we write down some of the things you're observing, and and we'll see if in time these come to light and they're, you know, they they are as serious as you think they are. Um, so Wes just had he had a little notebook, and I had a spreadsheet on my computer, and anytime he, you know, someone was saying they put apart. Um, on the on the airframe to fix it and he realized that that part didn't even exist they didn't even have those parts um in the supply closet to put on the airframe he'd write down you know and he he didn't he didn't have access to everything to figure out hey how is this being falsified but he knew that part wasn't readily available yet someone was saying it was used to 
to fix the airframe. Um, so that's a, an example of, you know, one way that we started keeping records um, of his concerns. And I want to jump in for a second to talk a little bit more about Wes. Nicole, tell us, tell us about the young man from Greensboro, North Carolina, who came to the Naval Academy. The movie, Who Killed Lieutenant Van Dorn, focuses on this one incident, but there's a whole life behind it that got to this point. Tell us, tell us more about your late first husband. Uh, Wes, he, Wes had a, a joy and zeal for life that was infectious, uh, to everyone around him. I, I think that's probably part of, you know, part of the reason he had, he had such a, a good reputation in the command and as a leader. Um, but he was just a good human first before, before everything else. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy who'd be walking down the street and see an old man sitting on a, sitting on a park bench and he'd go sit, you know, I'd be very annoyed sometimes because we'd have many things to do, but he'd go and sit down next to this guy and be like, Hey sir, what's your story? You know, you know, what can I learn from you? He just, he looked everywhere in the world for something to learn and something positive. And, uh, from the, from the second that I met him, um, I just wanted to be around that. Um, it was just a feeling of good is the only way I can describe it. And I, I don't know if that does it justice. Um, but that's who he was. He was just, he was good. I don't know. It's, it's rare to, rare to see. It's true. I, I knew Wes a little bit at the Naval Academy. He was the class of 2007 and I remember him into everything. A true believer carrying his dive fins. I think he, I know he was selected to be a Navy SEAL and spent time at Bud's. I remember one day a Marine passed by wearing new digital camis. And Wes said something like, I can't wait to get in a set of those camis. So apparently at one point he wanted to be a Marine too. Uh, he played rugby. <laughs> he went to West Point. He was he was an ideal midshipman to most everyone, I think, who knew him. Um, and so he identified two real things. And sorry, go ahead. I was just agreeing with you very, very much so. That's all. And nodding and in happiness and joy because that, that is, that is who he was. Um. <laughs> he was a true believer. He wasn't keeping records to, um, report on someone or write someone up. I, I, I know when you say he mm. was keeping these records, he was keeping them because he was a true believer in the mission. He wasn't there for power. He was there to lead as we were taught at the Naval Academy. And so he identified two problems and Chris, I want to get your opinion on us on the second one, but the first one was leadership. What was the leadership problem Wes was pointing out? I should preface that with a little background. Um, I'm from a pretty far back military family. Um, I joined at a later age. Um, I mean, I was 27 when I joined. I've got various ranks and pay grades and all that on both sides. I have a little history with some leadership. The biggest... I would say thing that, that, that really kind of struck me is, um, strange with, with HM 14, I guess in general, but as a whole, the HM community would be. So I had a, um, I had a, I had a mentor, um, he was a senior chief. He was an AD senior chief. And, um, I'll never forget one day he, he said, he kind of HM 14 was my first squadron. And he, and he kind of said to me, he said, uh, you know, HM 14 is not the real Navy. Don't, judge the Navy on HM 14, just do your time, keep your head down and get out of here. 
um, you'll see the Navy when you get out to the Navy. And, and I just remember thinking, oh, that's really weird. And then as time went by, you kind of see what it is and why, where a lot of our maintenance control meetings are, you know, are, we worked a while with uh, civilian contractors and most of our civilian contractors were previous like senior chiefs and maintenance chiefs from like the eighties and nineties in the HM community that just, when they got out, they had a job. Um, and it seemed like we had a lot of that with, um, some of the, the senior officers as well, that they just wanted to just kind of at some point do their time at the squadron level and get to the wing or get to wherever. And just, it was almost like everybody just wanted to survive their time at HM 14. Um, they didn't, nobody wanted to ruffle feathers. Nobody wanted to, um, you know, be the wrinkle or whatever, I guess you could say it was, it was very much a, you know, keep an eye on your career. Don't screw your career up while you're here. Don't let anything else screw up your career while you're here and just do the Navy when you get past here. And it was the vibe and the actual put down, pass down that we got from, from a lot of leadership. So, I mean, just to, to cut to it, um, from your perspective, what was the, main issue was it the aircraft itself was it the inability of the navy to supply an aging system uh was it that it was you know an unglamorous workhorse that didn't get any get any love you know from from command or i mean how would you sum it up was it a design flaw was it you know how how do you see all of those different factors um playing out it was not a big navy issue i don't i don't think because the money was sent to places from, I guess you could say big Navy. Um, we just didn't use it right. Or, um, you know, at, at one point of our, our aircraft was supposed to get phased out and kind of replaced. Um, and then when that didn't, you know, when that, when that happens, you cut off contracts for parts being made, gaskets being made, um, all the way down to small electrical boxes, you know, and just when you stop making these things and then you realize, Oh, well, damn, we're going to have to fly this thing for, I mean, what are they saying now? 2025? That's it's almost 20 years past like the original replacement point or something. I mean, and nobody ever thought about let's get some of these contracts going again to, to give us some parts. And uh, so that would, that would probably, I would say, fall at like the wing level, obviously down to the squadron level, because I mean, I think if you're, if you're properly reporting your failures and deficiencies and what you're lacking up the chain, surely someone's going to notice and maybe start paying more attention or doing the right thing. But the only thing we cared at the squadron level was hours, you know, make sure you have enough hours in the, you know, in the, in the air. And it was like, I don't want to say that on a daily basis, it was like, don't be safe. Like it was never like that. It was always, it was always very much a, an aura and a presence of, you know, be safe to, you know, do that. But it, it would just depend on the time of the day or, um, what you were really missing to get it done or, um, or who was even calling the shots that day, uh, on, on, on how, you know, by the book, it was really kind of done. I, I, I think it's been recorded somewhere and I'll leave their name out of it. That I'm sure if they ever listen to this, they'll know who they are. They were, uh, an AE first class that was in uh, QA and we had to get, we were robbing some part out of a fuel cell one day and um, you're supposed to jump through all these mandatory hoops that end up taking 24 to 48 hours on making sure this fuel cell is safe to get into. And we weren't doing that. We weren't afforded that ability. And 
you know, we basically just had kids, you know, just in a fuel cell on 90 degree days on the Virginia <laughs> waterfront, like just hoping we don't pass out and like die. And it was basically, we were told we don't have time to do this that way and let this tank air out for 24 hours, get in there, get it done, or we don't go home till it's done. And, and, you know, who do you complain to when quality assurance who's supposed to be there for the safety monitoring is, is barking that order down. And of course the obvious answer is, well, you should have gone to the chief or the, or the, you know, QAO or the XO or CO or whatever. But if, if you've done much research into any of the backstory here, open door policy is only an open door policy until you actually use the open door. Um, and then you're blasted for jumping the chain of command. So um, that was its own thing. But, and then what was the last? I was asking, was it, you know, was it a design flaw itself? I mean, I know that in terms design of flaw, usage, yes. you know, the, 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 the usage demands, I mean, a lot of this was, well, certainly in the mine sweeping capacity is low altitude, high tension on the airframe. You know, uh, it's, it, it takes a beating. I mean, it's a workhorse. Yeah. It's meant to be a workhorse, but it, it really, really takes a beating. Was it, was it something about the aircraft that it just wasn't designed to take that kind of repeated mission? So after the crash, there was inspection periods, and then there was the time period where the Marine Corps felt that the inspections weren't done properly, and that's when we had a lot of engineers in. Um, and I was not, I was not like the ultimate go-to or whatever, but I was in a small group of people that were considered the, the go-to. So I spent a lot of time standing on the bird with engineers, pointing at things, and if they're asking where something is, you show it to them, and and it was it was absolutely mind blowing to be standing on this helicopter and watch this electrical engineer and this hydraulics engineer and this, you know, mine hunting engineer guy and all these people. You could just tell. And they even said it out loud. They'd never seen all this stuff like together. So like over the years, you know, you you oh, this problem, this problem keeps happening. So we're going to create this monitoring system that requires all these wires and computers. Cool. Just. Just draw out how to put them in there. We'll put them in there. Well, that engineer doesn't think about the other stuff that's already shoved through that little two-inch hole going through a, you know, a, a bulkhead wall. It, 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 and so you just have all of these things just shoved into this tiny little can um, that were never supposed to be working in sync or together or let alone rubbing next to each other completely soaked in, you know, fuel and hydraulic oil and all this other stuff. It just, so yes, design flaw. Absolutely. Um, whoever built system a never talked to system B in the sense that it was continuously, you know, trying to get that last mile of service out of something that had not been replaced by the military. Not even necessarily that a lot of the things that they kept adding were to try and fight or overcome safety problems they were having, oh. whether it was right. structural things or, um, you know, hydraulic system failures or whatever, um, bad metal that right. would be cracking in different parts. You know, they would always just keep adding these monitoring systems to just. Can I jump? Yeah. Can I jump in real quick? It, I think I think I, th I think what happens is is like and this was all kind of bared out in our reporting is you start asking questions of people like Chris who worked in the aircraft or, um, you know, people like the the crew members and and pilots who have experience on this aircraft and you realize it's sort of there's a confluence of factors that happen it, it are all all going on at the same time that ultimately 
don't work against setting the service member up for success, right? So we talked to um, we talked to a couple of like old time Pentagon watchers, people who worked in the building and around it, and and um, were really sharp on on the sense of priorities there. And first of all, on the Navy side, you're dealing with the mine sweeping mission, right? And mine clearing. And one of these folks, Pierre Spray, really whip smart individual, unfortunately passed away last year. He's like, people who work in, in the mine mission don't get promoted to admiral, you know? So whether you're on the ships or on these helicopters, right? They're, so they're fighting fighting to salvage their career and advance their career any way they can, can, even though they're kind of in a, you know, thankless, uh, position. So things that get attention are glamorous, glamorous jobs, glamorous weapon systems, fighter jets, aircraft carriers, and so on. And things like helicopters, while, you know, one Marine told me at one point that flying a helicopter is like the most Marine marine thing you can do right you're going into it you're carrying people you're delivering the goods and and so on but it's still not as glamorous as a fighter jet therefore the fighter jet is going to get the resources that that it needs you know and and at that the new fighter jet the next great thing is going to get the resources um so you have you have mission questions and um the the new thing robbing from the old at all times that has an effect on maintenance and influences what sort of spare parts are being um, procured so that people like Chris have the ability to do their jobs. Uh, another Marine shared a story with us where they needed uh, an, an auxiliary fuel tank for a 53 Echo uh, that they were working on. They didn't have one. So they went out to the museum bird parked at the gate of the base, like in the middle of the night, like two or three in the morning with a bunch of wrenches and a, a, a cart, grab the, the fuel tank off this helicopter, you know, that's not, that's like, you know, just, just the shell, right? They take, take it back to the hangar, try to put it on this 53E. It's a different color. It doesn't fit. And then they got to run all the way back there, you know, and attach it back on. Like that's, you know, that's the experience of, of folks who are without anywhere to turn and are not getting supported in the way that they, um, that they need to, to the point where, and ultimately the cause of Wes's crash is you are left with a wiring type on the aircraft that the Marine, uh, Navy and Marine Corps um, had known for decades that it is just a dangerous substance that is prone to uh, chafing and arcing and contributing to fires and and ultimately devastating explosions. Um, when your attention is always elsewhere, it's really easy to forget about these other things that really matter. If you're focused on promotions and glamour and career and yourself at the expense of the regular service member who is doing the dirty work and getting on these aircraft. Zach, I think I, I think I've told you this story. I don't know if it ever made it or anything like that, but you talk about going to 
take something off of a museum piece. To me, that sounds like at least that thing was properly preserved. We had an aircraft crash into a rice field in Korea and burn. And serialized parts are obviously much more accounted for. We dug through the ashes of a burnt helicopter to find non-serialized parts we could use. Specifically hardware. I mean, I, I we were like it joyed to find that we found like 40 of the windshield screws um, that we could get out of that bird without them breaking to be able to use on the birds that we flew on a daily basis. Hey, Chris, you have a unique perspective and you're talking about cannibalizing parts to make your aircraft run. Is this particular to you or is this something you've shared with other aircraft maintainers, uh, either when you were in the service or since you've left the same experience? Uh, Candlelizing parts is not necessarily like a big no-no, but there is a real um, necessary documentation process for it. And I would say that for the most part, a lot of that is where we really strayed. Um, There would be a lot of times where we would troubleshoot problems by just finding a part and swapping it off different birds and seeing if the problem would follow. And, you know, there'd be times where there wasn't always the correct paperwork cut for that. Um, a lot of parts on aircraft are time, you know, time monitor components. Um, you'd be going through sometimes and you couldn't find a serial number on a part. Um, and, you know, we're talking about parts where there's a warranty sticker on it that says the warranty expires in 1984. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, a lot of it was, um, like I said, cannibalizing parts, I don't necessarily think in, in concept is, is, is the wrong thing. The way that we did it was the wrong thing. Um, it was a very willy-nilly attitude towards just pulling parts off of other aircraft to try them and electrical but, boxes. But that was ultimately get- driven by need, right? I mean, the, 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 the supply chain for the replacement parts wasn't there for you. And in other words, it was an adaptive strategy. I I would, I guess that would be a fair description, but I, I, you know, as, as time went by and, you know, your perception of things change, especially after, you know, people that, you know, die, um, did we need to do that? You know, no, I don't, I don't think that we did. Did we need to be out doing training missions when it was zero degrees outside and things clearly work differently, um, below freezing? No, I don't think we needed to do that. Um, you can get kind of mixed up in it while you're in the middle of it. In you know, you're, I don't want to say brainwashed, but you're just convinced that it's, you know, mission necessary, mission first. And then you realize, what mission? <laughs> We're just training. Um, it's not that big of a deal. Let's wait on the, let's wait on the park to come from across town. We don't have to steal it off this one that's been sitting here for nine months out in the rain. Um, there was a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And, and a lot of times to get that extra three hours of flight time on the books that day, we would kind of do the wrong thing. And so Nicole, back to Wes, you lost your husband on January 8th, 2014, uh, when his MH53E crashed. What would you say needs to change? Uh, well, I, I like to think that some of it has changed, um, given all the efforts over the past, you know, seven years or so. But I mean, I, I think, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty obvious what needs to change. 
I think that the accountability, there needs to be actual accountability. I think that accountability shouldn't exist just on paper. Um, it, it seems very clear from what, you know, what Chris is saying and what Wes observed that, you know, there's all these procedures and you can go to this person and you can go to this QAO and you can, you can make this complaint, but you can't. In practice, in theory, sure you can, but in practice, the result is that either your career is destroyed, you don't get the help you need, or it's a dead end, or you're, you know, you're told, oh yeah, okay, thank you, you know, thank you for that report, and then nothing changes. I don't know if that that will come in the in the um, form of maybe a impartial third party who is serving and acting as the QAO of some of these, um, some of the subcontractors that are working for the government and are also overseeing the maintenance of the helicopters. You know, I'm, again, I'm just a, uh, I'm just a, a civilian, but it doesn't, it clearly, it seems very clear to me that having people whose self-interest and careers and career trajectory is intimately tied to their reporting or non-reporting of what's going on, having them be the ones that decide, am I going to report this or not? Um, it doesn't seem to have worked. Um, and I think that's very clear. So that's something that I would like to see change. And again, I don't know how to make those changes, but there are certainly people um, with more experience than, than I have um, that could make those determinations. And similarly, Zach, you put in three years making this film. Uh, you've spent the last three to four years touring it, promoting it, clashing with the government in some circumstances to make sure that it was properly told and received. What is your takeaway from the experience? Well, I think, I think one on a, on a personal level, it's, Anytime I've worked on a story, you you dive into material that you're un, unfamiliar with beforehand, and it just becomes incredibly interesting. Um, I was in a position where, like I like I think most Americans, where we are so comfortably removed from the realities of military life. You know, not just not just the battlefield and all that that brings, but just the daily grind um, at home. I didn't have to think about this. And working on this particular story forced me to and realized like how blissfully unaware I was of this, uh, this kind of problem. And I think, I think more folks need to be aware of that. And I think when we've shown the film, um, people, people realize that we're told constantly, oh, I, I had no idea that that happened or, um, oh, this happened to my brother on a submarine and I didn't realize the uh, situation was was so similar elsewhere. Um, so that's one kind of personal takeaway. And, and second, picking up on what Nicole said about accountability is, you know, sometimes we see forms of accountability, maybe, maybe a squadron commander, um, get sacked over a particular safety issue. You know, we saw that, I think it was summer of, um, summer of maybe, um, blanking on the year, but HM 15, the sister squadron, um, had a couple of crashes, I think summer 2012, uh, in close proximity to each other in, in Oman. And, uh, again, in, um, 
uh, Bahrain um, at the airport. And that squadron commander uh, was out of a job pretty quickly. But what about their boss? You know, the ones who, uh, and their boss after that, the ones who appropriate resources, the one who makes decision about how we're going to equip this, you know, particularly unglamorous um, helicopter. Um, you know, what are we going to do to help them succeed versus, you know, some other thing uh, in another corner of the military? You know, time again, we see uh, the generals go off and get cushy jobs and board positions at defense contractors. Um, they're never held accountable. You know, they get to live off the retirement plus the six-figure um, board salary, the vice president's job, and and so on. Whereas people who actually have to do the work just kind of, you know, just get by. Zach, can you update us on what the status of the aircraft is in, in the 2021 budget? I, I believe they were starting to sign sideline the 53E and there, there's the 53K that's supposed to come in and start replacing. Can you fill us in on that? Do you know, do you know where they are on that? You'll be able to find better, you'll be able to find better numbers than me, but you know, when, when we're doing our, our, um, cause I feel like it's one, it's one of those things that's constantly changing, but the, when we were doing initial clip research, um, you know, and researching, okay, what's been written about this helicopter when the 53 K was announced, you know, it was supposed to be online, you know, before Wes's, uh, the, before that 53 crash in Virginia, like these, these kinds of things were, there's always an optimistic timetable given it's never met. And, you know, besides that, the, the Navy wasn't even originally signed on to get to the, the 53 K it was pure, it was purely a Marine Corps aircraft. I, I have one thing I wouldn't mind adding a little bit. Me, me and Zach were talking about this the other day. You know, you don't know what you don't know when you're in the middle of the storm kind of a thing. Right. And it was it was if I could stress one thing that I would love to see get addressed. You know, and I, I think Zach was talking about how it's always the little guys that kind of get pounded down. You know, I went from being considered one of the go to knowledgeable people in the squadron. Every time there was a rescue debt to go do something, it was, you know, I was heavily involved in that. I was I was respected. And then there was a crash. And then within 15 months, I'm 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 out of the Navy as as a as a cantor to my squadron, and and in in the therapy that I've had throughout the years, whether it was through with actual therapists or uh, bourbon therapy or spending time with Zach, um, you know, you you learn and you kind of discover, and then as you just get older, um, nobody gave two thoughts about the extreme decline um, of what. Pa probably was considered one of the better sailors in the squadron. No one, no one cared about the mental health of a person that was clearly going through something. Um, and I think the accountability should be with those in charge. The fact that no one, no one thought to ask me if I was okay. Um, if, if, if there was things that we were going through, um, as us younger guys, we didn't get, we didn't get that therapists are in this hangar to go talk to you if you want to. We didn't get that. We got to get back to work. Um, and I think that that is a big thing that needs to change. Um, I know mental health, not just in the military, but in, in, in all of society is, 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 is generally being easier to discuss and, and, and recognize, but that's a big thing um, is don't just keep 
wearing these young kids out and just telling them to get over it. Um, there needs to be better, better avenues for these people to get help. Um, and maybe stuff like this doesn't, doesn't happen as much if it's okay for these people to think that they can speak up just that. Nicole, any last words? Um, yeah, I just had something I wanted to add and I I don't know, it's, it's not directly related to the film. Um, but I, I did, um, in in terms of change that, um, I, I wanted to see happen. I did want to make note of, um, you know, the, the problem is not just, it's not just within the squadrons and the military. It also, there all are also military subcontractors, um, who, who are very much at fault in Wes's, um, in Wes's crash, but I, are, are intimately involved in, in the maintenance of the aircrafts. Um, and in, uh, this, this past winter, uh, we had, I have a case um, against one of those such subcontractors. Um, we had some significant success in the Texas Supreme Court. Um, we won our appeal in the te- Texas Supreme Court. Um, they're going to send it back to to Texas, um, you know, against this company who was directly overseeing the wiring uh, in Wes's aircraft on that day. Um, so the more, um, just the more people that are aware of this story, the more people that are um, are talking about it. That also does. It really does help us, um, and it it really just adds. Um, it gives us strength to continue fighting and to continue fighting these battles that are. I mean, they're there's. It's such a diverse battle um, in so many different arenas um, that the support and the um, the acknowledgement by the public really um, does help. Well, Chris, I mean, Nicole Van Dorn and Zach Stoford. Thank you so much for uh, sharing the film with us and, and, and talking about these issues. None of them are easy. None of them are immediately solvable. But the film is an important conversation to be had. For our, li- our, our listeners, I, I hope that you go out and check, check the film out. It's available streaming in a variety of places. Amazon, Canopy, iTunes, Sundance, etc. Look for it. Chris Hummy, Nicole Van Dorn, Zach Stouffer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.